This is Alan Olson's American Dreams, the case of life success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. And we have an exciting show today. We have Andrew Bergman coming on a little later with the Auction News Network. Uh, his website goes around the world and tracks 700 different auction houses for the arts and collectibles, what's hot on the market today. Really exciting website and very insightful for the, uh, the work that they're doing. Um, but in the meantime, I have Carol Lee here today with me. Hello, Alan. How are you doing, Carol Lee? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Good. Carol Lee, I, I hear you have a joke for me. I do. Okay, you ready for this? Go ahead. All right. Name all the cars that start with T, and you have 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Oh, my gosh. Tesla. Is there any others? I don't think there's any other than Tesla. Okay, Alan. Actually, cars don't start with T. They start with gas. Oh, it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, though. Thanks. <laughs> well, so, so, Carly, I want to go through a leadership moment here. Yeah, a message about giving and serving others. Um, you know, I recently read an article um, about a family that moved into a new neighborhood and uh, here, here in the U.S., and they had a little girl, Annie. And shortly after coming into the neighborhood, Annie began developing medical problems. And uh, she was taken to the clinic. The doctors at first were not able to determine what was wrong with her, um, but the continued the condition of the little girl uh, worsened, and they had to take her back into the hospital. And when she was admitted to ICU, the doctors finally diagnosed that she had uh, a failing liver. And and so without transplant, she was given about 48 hours to live. Well, being new to the neighborhood and community, uh, the neighbors heard what was going on, and they all rallied behind this family and took the other children, gave them babysitting. They brought meals in. They did anything that they could to help this this family with uh, with this young little girl and try to give them comfort. And um, after doing fundraisers, offering prayers, uh, you know, the the community members who did not know Annie or her family, um, they they began to come to know them them better. Um, they even went around asking if they knew of anyone in in their community who could help to provide a you know for for the liver transplant. And uh, and doctors were able to inform the family that. Um, that they did find a donor for Annie, and um, within a short period of time, they were able to successfully do it at transplant. So it, it was an interesting story um, from individuals that who did not know Annie's family, giving of themselves, helping, serving others that they didn't know, and and uh, just as Annie's family had received comfort in their time of need, those people also giving this service received an equal amount of comfort. Um, yeah, I'm a member of the Rotary Club, and they have a saying that service above self. Um, but so often it's, uh, you know, as we get busy in our lives, um, we fail to uh, remember that there's a lot of individuals around us hurting and the need to have um, their spirits uplifted. So, anyways, uh, Carly, as you, as you go through uh, thinking about life, you know, what, what do you see in, uh, in, in this world? You know, I see that there are so many rewards that come along with um, giving of our time and talents. And I think one of the greatest rewards is the satisfaction of knowing 
that we responded to a real need. And the serving of others does not, always, does not only eliminate selfish focuses we have, but it also gives us more meaning to our own lives. That's so true. That's so true. I, I'll tell you a story that uh, is something that personally I learned this last week. I went with my wife to pick up her car. She had her oil changed, and uh, as we went down there, um, we both drove together, and we got to the, the car repair place, and I got out one side of the car and my wife out the other, and uh, unbeknownst to either of us, uh, she had a bunch of bills fall from her pocket. Those bills should have been in my pocket, first of all, but <laughs> but they, they fell out of her pocket, and she uh, she walked into the auto shop with us, and uh, and pretty soon this, this big burly guy with tattoos and really rugged looking comes up, and he has a fistful of bills. And uh, he says to me, excuse me, sir, but your wife dropped all this money on the ground, and uh, I want to return it to you. And I said, Wow, thank you. So I took the bills and I put them in the rightful place, my pocket. <laughs> and uh, and and he walks away and and I got to thinking about this and I thought, well, that was a, a marvelous act of honesty on his part. He could have kept the bills. I would have never known about it. And he went back to sitting on his chair, um, sitting in the parking lot. Just I don't know what he was doing, just thinking about life. And um, so walked back up to the guy and I said, excuse me, sir. He says, but, you know, I uh, I was just impressed with the honesty that you you just showed us. You know, you could have kept that money. I, said, I would have not known it. My wife would have not known it. But because you came back and, uh, and were honest, I said, I want you to have all the money. The guy looked at me. He says, really? I said, yeah, really. And I, I said, you know, this is a great lesson in life about, uh, you know, integrity and honesty. And I said, and, and you have helped me to understand this lesson and this principle better today. And as I looked at that guy, I got this warm feeling inside. And I just it suddenly realized that this was a man who was honest, but who was also going through a lot of hardships in his own life. And there was a principle that I was being taught there that, you know, it wasn't about um, about himself and his own needs. It was about his own integrity and honesty and living the principles which he felt was important in life. And, um, and I, I walked away from that meeting saying, well, that was a great lesson for me. Um, because, it, again, it was, it was a service above self. It was the principle of honesty and integrity. And I think that people often find that as they get involved in serving others, they find that the service is not always about money. What do you find, Carolee, in your service? Well, I feel I feel like when I serve others, I feel really good inside. And the best part, like I said earlier, um, is feeling that satisfaction of knowing that I helped them. But it's just seeing their smile and... Um, and just, I don't know, knowing that I helped them, it, it's the greatest feeling. Yeah, and I think it's, I, I think there's something true about that. I had, when I sent my first son, Aaron, off to college, uh, he found a lot of great satisfaction going out down to the rest homes. And uh, every day he would go down and he'd make balloons, balloon animals, and he'd visit with people. And 
So I was halfway through the first semester in college, I get a call from the university, and it tells me Aaron's failing every single class. And I call Aaron up. I said, Aaron, what's going on? I go, Dad, these people down in the rest home, they need people to visit them. And uh, so I've been spending a lot of time down there. And I said, okay. So as a dad, how do you counsel your son that you're, uh, you're sending him to go to school and not on a service mission there? And, uh, and and so I, I kind of struggled with what the right thing it was it was a it was a good thing that he was doing but at the same time we had to we had to get his schoolwork done and so I I made a deal with there and I said look you bring your grades up and we'll um we'll we'll talk about this after after the semester and uh, sure enough Aaron was able to get his grades up and what he found later is that uh, he was able to find the correct balance in life. I, I think you can't skew anything too far one way or the other. But one thing that as you go through life, you do have to have this balance out there. But the greatest rewards in life come as you are engaged in the service of your fellow men. So, Alan, um, what about others? The listeners of this radio show, um, if they want to help others but they're not quite sure where to start, what would you suggest they do? You know, start with the simple things of who do you know around you. There, there's always someone in need of a friend. There's always someone in need of having their spirits uplifted. Yesterday I went to a, a music lesson and my my teacher said, you know, she says, I really didn't feel like doing anything today. She says, but when you came and you sang, it lifted my spirits up. And uh, that made me feel good inside. It made me feel that I had something worthwhile to offer. And I think everyone that, as they go through, they may be depressed. They may, you know, be out of work. They may have uh, their challenges at the office. But if they can just pick one thing that day and say, I'm going to do one thing outside of myself. I'm going to give some type of service. I'm going to make somebody who I meet feel good. And I'm going to, you know, make sure that in that relationship, that I leave the person better off than I first met them. It's, uh, it becomes quite a rewarding experience. Thank you, Alan. And, and you, know, there's, you know, for people that want to get involved, there's just an abundance of, of ways. But it's, uh, you know, my suggestion is you, as you do that, get involved in something that you have a passion with, something that you feel, yeah, this is really what I want to do. It's where I can make a difference. Every one of us are wired a little bit differently, and, uh, and but but the more that we can focus in on the things that we feel inside, where our passion rests, what we like to make a difference in life, you know, at the end of life, it doesn't matter every relationship that you had of a dispute, and of, you know, within family members, within friends, your enemies, you know, the the, the financial problems that you have, it doesn't matter once you're dead, you know, you're six feet under. But what will matter, what will carry on is the relationships you have with other people. And, um, and, and so when you're, when you're out there and, um, you know, fighting through the battles of life, you know, if you can focus on where you want to end up and what you want to give back to others, it makes more, life more meaningful. So this is Alan Olson's America Dreams, the keys to life success. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Andrew Bergman of the Auction News Network. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, the Keys to Life Success. 
We're here today talking with Andrew Bergman. Andrew is a journalist, and um, he's been involved extensively in the past with a lot of uh, the Hollywood uh, screenwriting and also with several of the uh, network shows appearing on ABC's uh, Good Morning America, uh, to mention one of many. Um, Andrew now works with the Oxygen News Network, and uh, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks, Alan. So, Andrew, can you tell us about the Auction News Network, what, it, what it's about, and how it came to be? Of course, the Auction News Network uh, covers uh, basically the worldwide auction market, posting news stories, video, interview, commentary every day on the um, 70 categories of auction goods that um, are offered worldwide, including art, coins, stamps, wine, vintage cars, high-end real estate, watches, and so on. Uh, in the recent days, we've had stories about everything from the world's oldest running car. It was a steam car, by the way, um, produced in 1884 at the Dame du uh, which sold for $4.6 million last week, which was twice the highest estimate. Interestingly, it was also the first car ever to be in a road race, and um, no other car showed up, so it won. It averaged 21 miles an hour on the 20-mile course outside Paris. So we've had course, uh, stories on that, on a, a $4 million vintage Ferrari, and a case of Burgundy that sold for $200,000, uh, which was over $2,700 a glass. Um, uh, Patek Philippe 1950s pink gold, excuse me, pink gold wristwatch that sold for three quarters of a million dollars last week, um, and then all kinds of oddments that come up regularly that are are a delight. Everything from Queen Victoria's bloomers to the binoculars that uh, that um, Abraham Lincoln carried to Ford's Theater to uh, Saddam Hussein's bottom, actually the bottom that was stolen from the statue that we all watched American troops rip down in Baghdad to John Lennon's tooth. So it's quite a range of material that we uh, produce each day. You know, I, and, uh, I I have been just amazed at, uh, at how extensive and how deep uh, the, the website at Auction News Network goes. Um, but one of the trends I've been noticing is that, you know, with, with this worldwide currency fluctuation is, you know, is, is the dollar going up? Is it going down? How are we solving the, the deficit? I have, I've noticed a flight in, um, in uh, you know, to individuals looking for safety and security into collectibles. Um, at least there seems to be a trend that uh, every time these auctions are going out, the, the prices seem to be get running up beyond what was expected. Um, what's your take on that, Andrew? Well, that's absolutely true. Two things have really converged. One is uh, the vast amounts of new money from emerging markets, and it's pouring into collectibles. It isn't just China. It's also uh, Brazil, the Middle East, and um, new investors in collectibles who uh, have come into vast amounts of money who seem to be younger and much more willing to part with it. At the same time as the uh, financial markets have become unstable, they see these collectibles as areas of tangible value. A stock may go down by 50% in a day, but a vintage car never will. And so these things have drawn their, their attention in a way that they never had before. And People have resources that they never had before to in, indulge their interest in these things, and both have produced astronomical values in things. 
You know, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of people collect different things over the years, but one of the things that fascinates me is uh, is what's happening over in China uh, with wine. In fact, I uh, I was talking to a friend. He he said that in China, if a person is serious about doing business, they'll they'll open a four thousand dollar bottle of wine in front of these clients and pour a glass, and and it, it's a status symbol. Uh, that the more expensive the wine, the you know the the more impressed the clients are to, um, you know, before the individual pouring before them, and so, you know, this trend of of wine in, on the Hong Kong market has been interesting, and you you follow that. We do. We followed very closely. Really, the big development over there was that several years ago, import tariffs were listed, and at that point, there was no barrier to entry for auction companies, and also. It was at that point that um, huge amounts of money were, were becoming available for these people to spend. It's gotten to the point where Chateau Lafitte, above all things, seems to be uh, the wine of choice. All expensive uh, Burgundies and Bordeaux have, have soared in value over there. But it seems as if no business deal can be sealed without a bottle of Lafitte that costs $8,000 or more. And it's become absolutely commonplace. Both Christie's and Sotheby's have had huge sales over there, as well as a variety of other companies like Spectrum. Uh, and in the last 17 sales, not a single bottle of wine has gone unsold. So it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's certainly a trend, um, and uh, it shows no sign of abating. That that's amazing. I I uh, I was pulling my friend. He actually happens to be uh, under Governor Schwarzenegger, appointed to California Wine Commission, and then. Carried that over to uh, you know to uh, Jerry Brown, but you know I asked him. I said, "So why don't we take the Napa Valley wines over there, and uh, you know we'll buy them for what they are, you know the uh, the you know twenty bucks a bottle, and go do this." And he says, "Ah, he says uh, it's not going to work in China, but he says you can get about three times the value uh, moving over there, which I thought it's kind of interesting. It's, it seems like the French have the the market cornered in, in that area." Well, it's the French. You know, new buyers tend to go for those things, whether it's wine or art or watches. New buyers, um, and virtually all buyers in China are new buyers because the billionaires over there are so recently minted, want to buy those things that have the most recognizable value, that have the most prestige, and that confer the most status to them when they have it, when they drink it, or when they wear it, or put it on their walls. And so it's it's those really those things that have established the name brand that do best over there. So in watches, it's uh, Patek Philippe. In art, it's Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol's works alone accounted for 17% of the entire art market this year. It's just a phenomenal wow. increase and, in and the what value. Are, what are those going for about now, just for the listeners? Well, for example, um, one of his paintings uh, – sold for $63.4 million this year. It was called The Men in Her Life. It was a painting of uh, Elizabeth Taylor. A 1963 self-portrait sold this spring for $38.4 million. And the list of his works that have sold for vast sums is, is very, very long. It's not just Andy Warhol. Uh, contemporary art, again, because it's the most familiar, the most recognizable and uh, confers the most immediate status is also soaring in value. Um, 
you, you know, it's made, so Andrew, let, let, let's go back to how did this auction news network start? Whose brainchild was this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it with a friend who I worked with at ABC for years, who was a correspondent at uh, ABC News uh, named Greg Jackson. And he and I remained in touch. For me, it really started with classified ads. When I was very young, I became fascinated by them. As I started traveling for work for uh, various newspapers and writing for magazines and later for ABC, virtually the first thing I'd turn to as I got to a place was the classified section of the local newspaper because it revealed so much about the life of the place, about what was valued within it. And what the what the real currency was in which which people dealt. Growing up in New York, I, I went to auctions quite frequently because there was so much of the cultural landscape, and I was always taken by really the drama of the event. They're very much like sporting events. The outcome is never unknown. There's a fair amount of excitement that's associated with it. And as Greg and I were casting about for something to do on the internet our attention began to turn to the auction world because it was so little covered. It's a more than a $50 billion business a year. And yet, apart from the few astronomical sales a year of a vintage car or a work of art, it virtually gets no coverage at all, and we saw it as a tremendous opportunity. We also began attending auctions uh, to sort of test our, our, our premises, everything from high-end uh, art to to Treasury Department auctions, which would draw vast crowds and often realize prices way beyond what the items were worth. And we saw that that there was a tremendous opportunity to cover something that wasn't being covered and to also Andrew, present yes. – Well, I, I, need, I need to take a quick break here, but we'll, uh, I'd like to have the continued discussion here. This is Alan Olson with uh, America Dreams, Keys to Life Success. We'll be right back after this short message. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams. We're here today visiting with Andrew Bergman of the Auction News Network. Andrew, uh, we were uh, before the break. We're talking about the genesis of the Auction News Network. Can you uh, can you give us a quick update on this and how how it came to be? Well, sure. As I was saying, it really grew out of uh, the new technologies that emerged with the internet and the possibilities that they offered for covering things in a different way on a much smaller scale, but reaching the same number of people. We focused on on auctions largely because they were so little covered by the popular press, and it was such a huge business filled with such fascinating stories that we were amazed we're not receiving more attention around the world. And so we saw that there was a niche that we could occupy. We also saw that there was a new technology that would enable us to do it with modest resources, at least at the start. The biggest development was streaming video and the quality uh, that it offered at that time and the degree to which it had improved so that we would be able to do interviews. We'd be able to to cover things that used to take a film crew with nothing more than a, a flip video camera or even our iPhones. And using those resources, we saw that we could put together a site that we could produce material for and represent in a way that would have taken a very substantial team to do 
just a few years earlier. So, w- so when, we, did, when did you first start in this uh, auction news network? What year did this begin? We started several years ago. We've, been, we've actually launched the site about a year and a half ago. And so we spent a very long time preparing because we, we, we wanted to not really launch the thing until we developed a number of utilities for it. So, for example, we established relationships with over 700 auction galleries around the world. We produced a lot of content that we would repack the site with so that when we launched, we'd have a resource that people could use to learn about their own passions within those 70 categories. We developed a team of contributors, experts in art and vintage cars, even one uh, highly esteemed expert on taxes who lives in the Bay Area who offers us expert <laughs> articulate commentary. I seem to know on, that guy. <laughs> yes, I think you do on tax consequences of collecting. Yeah, let, let me bring this back in terms of with, with today's financial markets and the volatility of, of the dollar. Andrew, I I have to say your your timing towards launching this show has been just perfect. It uh, because what I've noticed is the is people moving back to the flight to safety. The um, you know the the arts and collectibles have just been going off the charts. I think uh, Sotheby's hitting new highs. These auction houses just doing uh, uh, gangbusters in business. Um, but bringing this back. Um, when I go through this site, I've noticed that it's very deep, it's very thorough, and very in-depth. And so it, it turns out to be an excellent resource in trying to consolidate all these auction houses and, and the market themes. But you also got some really weird and abstract collectibles there. So c- can you give some comments about some of the things that have been up for auction that kind of turned the head? Well, certainly one of the oddest uh, in recent weeks has been a, a, a tear of singing bird pistol pocket watches that were sold in Hong Kong. They were made in the early 1800s by a company, a French company called uh, Piquet and Mylan. And Chinese collectors love these things. They sold for $5.8 million in Hong Kong. Pocket watch, Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, More recently, a, a... a fan watch. It, it opens in a series of fans, again, produced for the Chinese market for the uh, Queen Long Emperor, uh, sold at auction for many hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then there are all these oddities that, that come up on a regular basis that are just fascinating. For example, an Enigma machine, which was the coding device that enabled uh, Great Britain to break the German codes in World War II and prevail in the war. Uh, sold a couple of weeks ago for $208,000. Fonzie's motorcycle came up for auction. As it happened, he never rode it because Henry Winkler was afraid of motorcycles, but all the same, because it was seen on the show every week, it was perceived to have a lot of value. Great trivia uh, there. <laughs> uh, first edition of the Star Spangled Banner sold for a half million dollars uh, recently. There have been Teddy Roosevelt's pistols. Uh, within the last couple of days, a letter by Paul McCartney, in which he was looking for a drummer for the band, came up for auction. Wow. So, uh, so if, if we bring this back to the listeners, and, and we see that, you know, you know, my brother's always put it real simple. He says, making money is real easy. You just find out where 
you know, two people are exchanging uh, money, and um, and then you you step in the middle and and add some type of value to the transaction, and and so it leads to believe that in the case of auction houses, a great opportunity for people to uh, participate in in the opportunity to make some type of money here. But Andy, with that said. Would you consider auction collecting as an investment or a hobby? Well, I think it's both. It's both. Obviously, uh, we concentrate on the higher end of the market, those things that have great anecdotal value. Our approach to the market is uh, as if it were the Olympics, and that's the kind of coverage that we try to do in which 80% of it is about the items. So naturally, there are the items in which we report have to have great stories. But even at the low end, people who amass collections of tremendous substance and value tend to be passionate about those things. They're not doing it just for the investment. They're also uh, intensely interested in that category. In the high end, people are acutely aware that, especially as we're saying with the uncertainty of financial markets, that Major paintings, major automobiles, major watches uh, that are very rare are unlikely to lose much of their value. In fact, they've only gone up in value. That may not continue. I don't think that people regard these necessarily as just investments, they're, but they're acutely aware that they provide a lot more security than the other options that are out there. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that with that said, with everything else, there there is risk associated and Nothing grows to the sky. But in recent years, um, I've seen clients buy rare cars, and before they've taken delivery, people have offered them millions more than their their purchase price simply from the rarity of the item. Um, the Absolutely. Just uh, just last year, a 1936 Bugatti, uh, it's called a Type 57 SC Atalante, sold for $30 million or more. Only 17 of these were produced. They always sell for great amounts. But that is probably a record. Uh, the auction record for a car was, was also set earlier this year. It was a 1957 Testa Ferrari prototype, which sold at Pebble Beach for $16.4 million. Sales of three, four, five million million have become commonplace in that world. They no longer even gather much attention as a result so that these things have boomed in value, and it's across many categories that it's happening. So you're, you're seeing the trends continue in recent weeks of... Uh... Absolutely. And as I say, much of, much of the energy has been provided to the market in, in recent months, especially during this time of financial turmoil by the emerging markets, by China, of course, and the rest of Asia, by Russia, by Brazil, and by the Middle East. Actually, the biggest player in the contemporary art market over the past year has been the Arab Emirate, Qatar, which has bought the huge majority of the high-end paintings that have come up for sale. So it's happening worldwide, and really it's the worldwide market that, it, that, it, that is fueling the rising value of all these collectibles. It's almost like a world currency that uh, the, the political and diplomatic barriers no longer matter because... If the item is rare, it has value, and uh, that value will continue to be held regardless of what financial markets do. That's absolutely true. It is a new, a new currency, and it's, it's much more impervious to these internal developments than any of the local currencies. Another huge factor is that, of course, the Internet has changed everything because new buyers tend to be younger. They 
tend to amass their, their wealth younger. They've grown up on the Internet, and they have absolutely no, no uh, resistance whatsoever to buying things on the Internet so that the location of these auctions is becoming secondary to the people who are participating in them, who are, again, worldwide. So we're visiting here today with Andrew Bergman of the Auction News Network. And, Andrew, if someone wanted to find your website, how would they do that? Well, again, our URL is auctionnewsnetwork.com. We're very easy to find. Um, they can reach us by, by emailing us at info at Auction News Network. We'll be happy to correspond with them at any time. And uh, we invite them to take a look. We think we're providing, at the moment, the most comprehensive coverage of the auction world that's out there. And uh, we look to expand to the point where we'll become the Bloomberg of the auction world. And you're following some 700 auction houses right now? We are. We have a network of 700 auction houses that we correspond with on a daily basis, but we're whose, whose sales we list, um, whose goods we cover, but that list is growing very rapidly, so we think it will soon be in the thousands. Yeah, pretty extensive, and also it's, uh, you know, it, throughout the world, it's... Uh... It is. It's absolutely a worldwide market. There's virtually not a country in which there's some auction activity, and every day something fascinating comes up for sale, and it generally has a pretty good story. So I, I think, you know, personally, having been to the site many times and also directing clients over there, it's, uh, you know, th there is a vast amount of resources. And in today's world, it's, you know, I, I love following trends. It's, it's just like the market. These things are volatile, but uh, the rare, the art and collectible, it seems that it's only going one direction right now. That's so. true. That's true. And, of course, the deeper story is the story that it tells about really human character, what people value, what they like to buy and sell, and what draws their passions, and nothing is more interesting than that. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you joining the show today. This has been very insightful. Uh, once again, for our listeners, it's Andrew Bergman at the Auction News Network, and you can find that on the uh, Internet at auctionnewsnetwork.net. .com. Dot, dot .com, thank you. And <laughs> uh, we appreciate you being here with us, Andrew. And uh, this is Alan Olson, America Dreams, Keys to Life Success. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson, American Dreams, the Keys to Life Success. Boy, that uh, discussion with Andrew Bergman was just fascinating. Um, you know, as a tax professional, we talked about uh, with Andrew all these collectors and collectibles and the, uh, the, the attractions having in the market with uh, people flying to safety. So I'd like to talk somewhat about all these uh, tax benefits that you can get for collecting. Um, call it a business, and, and collecting offers a variety of tax deductions. Call it a hobby. And the IRS is likely to be more restrictive on what you're allowed to deduct. So when you begin looking at uh, the, uh, the the business of collecting, um, it's important to make sure that you know what you're going into. Alan, what are some deductions that are available to collectors? Collectors. Well, so I'm going to go back. I When I started my uh, tax career, I started with the IRS. And one of the first sections that they brought us through is Section 162, 162, and it said that you are allowed a deduction for any ordinary 
and necessary expense for the production of income. So what is ordinary and necessary? Well, it becomes subjective. You know, is a $300 dinner ordinary and necessary to produce a $10,000 sale? You know, you can make a good case for it. But what if it's a $900 sale? Is a $300 dinner ordinary and necessary? And uh, likewise, when you're in the area in the world of uh, collectors, you know, some of these... Um, some of the, the the activity could have some personal elements, such as, you know, a person following their passion for putting paintings on their home walls and, you know, their, their personal car collections, and they may not have that much to do with, with a trade or business. But then as the activity becomes more substantial and frequent, it, uh, it, it can have, it, it can change over from uh, more of a personal nature to more of a business nature. And so when you talk about the deductions that are available, you look at, you know, what is ordinary and necessary to produce my, my revenue here. If you're going to an auction on, on wine um, and the auction's over in Hong Kong, uh, well, you get on the plane, your trip, it could be deductible, all your travel expenses for the hotel, your car rentals, uh, expenses for researching and, um, you know, looking at the... Uh, the, the trade or the collectible that you're going after, um, deductible. Um, and uh, But you want to make sure that those expenses are in line with the amount that you expect to produce, you know, the income that you expect to produce over there. So, um, you know, it's all, it's all one thing that, you know, the IRS has outlined factors that you can go into and, and tests that you can look at. Are there risks involved with taking deductions? Well, there's always a risk in taking a deduction. Um, the, the risk is not knowing what you're doing. And uh, you need to make sure as you, as you put deductions on your return that you understand why this belongs on your income tax return. If, um, if you're not sure why it belongs there, well, you're going to have a hard time justifying this before the IRS and so one of the, the risks that people look at in the area of arts and collectibles, as IRS will often say, is it a business or is it a hobby? And so if it's a hobby, uh, you're still allowed to take deductions, but you can only take deductions to the extent of your income. And it's limited by a code section called 183, which basically limits a hobby loss to say you cannot take a hobby loss against other income on your tax return, such as your W-2 or your capital gain income. It's, it's only limited to your hobby income. So, um, so but when, one thing few people realize is that the hobby loss is not something that you volunteer yourself. The hobby loss is something that the IRS has to come and make an accusation to say, well, we think that you have a hobby and not a trader business. And then if that's the case, uh, the IRS has to prove their case by saying that they're going to review returns over a five-year period of time. And to the extent that you don't show income um, for more than two out of the five years, uh, they're going to they're win the case of the hobby loss. So individuals that know this, all they have to do is they, if they show a dollar income for two out of the five years, the IRS can't win the hobby loss rules. 
And, and so it, it's something that um, if you plan correctly, you, you, know, you, you have a good chance of winning the audit. So is your chance of being audited by the IRS higher when you have collections that you take deductions for? Uh, sometimes, but not always. Uh, I'll tell a story. I had a, uh, I had a client. She, um, she collected rare orchids around the world. And, of course, as a collector of rare orchids, she would have to fly to the Amazon jungle or she'd fly over to Africa or, you know, to the, uh, the tropics of the Philippines. And so lots of travel expenses, and she'd go there and she'd get these, uh, these rare flowers and she'd bring them back. And uh, as she had her rare orchid collection behind the house, um, over the years it grew. It grew to a two-and-a-half-acre greenhouse that was filled with all sorts of tropical plants from around the world. And uh, I became her, her CPA. And after 20 years in business, the iris comes knocking on the door and said, well, we want to look at your books and records. And so I represented her, and, and uh, when we sat down to talk about it, the IRS says, uh, you know, how many years has she shown a loss? I said, she's never shown a loss. And the, the guy says, well, I think you got a hobby. And I said, no, nah, it's not a hobby. He goes, well, tell me why it's not a hobby. I said, well, you come out to the place, and I'll show you why. And we went out there, and uh, we were able to show the, the structure of the greenhouse. We showed that there were trucks for delivering product. And um, the full-time employees that we had books and records that were maintained on a regular basis. And we said the, the fact of the matter is this is a, you know, more of an agricultural activity. Although she had a passion for the orchids, it expanded to other housekeeping events. And I said that, that you know, a lot of agriculture businesses are, are strained for, for profits based on the economy that we're in. And um, after working with the Iris Auditor and going through the, uh, there's an eight-factor test, uh, he allowed it all. He says, okay. He goes, I get it. He goes, you're losing money, but it's not a hobby. And, uh, and, and so we won the case. So, yeah, let's talk about these eight-factor tests, you know, if you're trying to defend a business uh, over a hobby. You know, here's the, here's the factors that you should consider. It says, number one, it says, does your time and effort you put in the hobby indicate an intention to make a profit? doesn't say have to be profitable. You have to intend to make a profit. Do you, do you depend on the income from the activity for a day-to-day -day living? If there are losses, are they due to circumstances beyond your control, or did they occur in the startup phase of becoming a collector? Have you changed the methods of operation to improve profitability of a transaction? The other things that they look at is do you or your advisors have the knowledge need to carry on the activity as a successful business? Have you made a profit in similar activities in the past? Does the activity make a profit in some years and not other years? And the last one they look at, can you expect to make a profit in the future from the appreciation of assets used in the activity? So all things considered, those eight factors are something that you need to be aware of when you're running an activity and uh, trying to you know, successfully argue that your business is not a hobby in the IRS's eyes. So in your profession, do you see many individuals interested in tax implications of collecting? Absolutely. There's, uh, the individuals will always have a passion, and uh, sometimes when it falls into collecting, it may be gold coins, it may be rare automobiles, it may be, 
you know, uh, pieces of real estate. You know, it's important to understand what the rules are and know, you know, when you can take your passion and your, your lifestyle and make it deductible, uh, you got a good thing going there. So um, so know the rules. Uh, you're entitled to take the deduction as long as you can support the ordinary and necessary business expense. So we're, uh, you know, the area you're collecting, if you're not sure, if you have some questions on that, seek a qualified tax advisor to help you out. But shortly, um, we're going to go back to a, a message here, and, uh, and then we'll be back to talk some more. This is Alan Olson, The Keys to Life Success, America Dreams. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson, American Dreams, the Keys to Life Success. So today's show, we've been talking about hobby loss and uh, you know what it means from a tax perspective and how to overcome the IRS invoking the hobby loss rules on you. We've also talked with Andrew Bergman of the Auction News Network. How collectibles and arts are now becoming an alternative to currency in the world market. What do you think about all this, Carly? Well, with the unpredictability of the stock market, collectible investments may be a good alternative to investing. There are several other investments that individuals can make. Alan, what do you think would be a wise investment for individuals to make in today's economy? That's a good question. And I, I think the answer to that is how much risk does a person want to take? You know, if a person is interested in uh, in making investments, they need to understand both upsides and downsides. There's no no such thing in this life as a get-rich-quick scheme. You can hear about opportunities out there, and so, oh, you can't lose money. Well, if 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 you hear that, walk away, you know, because it's just not it's not true. Everything that you go into will have some level of risk, including arts and collectibles. So when you're out there looking at uh, volatility in the market, I always, ha I always have a good rule of thumb. If you find yourself every day thinking about the stock market and thinking about how are my stocks doing today, are they going up, are they going down, do I want to buy, do I want to sell, well, the fact of the matter is you may just have too much money in there. Uh, you, know, the, you should have enough money in the market where you don't worry about risk. You know, If, if you lost it tomorrow you still be okay. And uh, But if you find yourself watching watching the markets every day, I, it takes me all the way back to an experience I had in college. And I had been eyeing this stock that was in the video game industry. It was uh, Atari. And at that time, Atari was owned by uh, Warner Communications. And Warner Communications traded in the mid-60s, 65 a share or so. And overnight, the stock fell $30 a share. And I was going to buy it at 65, but I had waited, and unfortunately, you know, I was looking at it at the $35 share level. So I ran down to the broker, and I took I took my college education money, and I said, I'm going to buy this stock, and I'm going to wait for it to go back to $65 a share. And uh, so I I took all this money and I I put it down. It was a whole $3,000, and the broker put the trade in. The next day, the stock fell another $5 a share. So I ran back to the broker, and I said, the stock went the wrong way. It was supposed to go up to 40 not down to 30 So he goes, well, do you want me to call the analyst back in um, New York? And I said, yeah, call him. So the analyst says, look, he goes, I've been telling you guys to sell this stock, 
And uh, for two weeks now, you're not telling people to buy it, are you? And the broker says, oh, maybe. Well, anyways, I decided to hold the stock, and it fell all the way down to $20 a share. But I finally gave up on watching it every day, and I finally sold the stock, took my loss, and I bought Hewlett Packard, which at that time it went $20 a share up. I, could just, I just got lucky, got my money back. So, you know, the lesson I learned is don't put money that you can't afford to lose into the market and taking risk. Make sure that you have a balanced approach. If you're not comfortable, get a qualified investment advisor to help you out. With a planned approach, you can make it through this volatile market today. In your opinion, what types of investments draw most individuals to them? You know, I think whatever you do, make sure you're diversified. Things will always go up. They'll always go down, but make sure you have a diversified and planned approach, taking the appropriate amount of risk in today's market so that you can achieve where your financial goals are. Um, you know, it, it put a team of financial advisors together, and I, I think that as we help each other and our various expertise, we'll get to where we want to be later on down the road. I appreciate all you being on the show today. It's, uh, you know, we, we look forward to having you back next week, Carolee. Now, this is Alan Olson, America Dreams, the keys to life success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? What defines success? 